0: Hello and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler. I'm Elijah Fleming.
1: And I'm Colin McCormick.
0: And today we'll be talking about Gladiator, a 2000 epic historical drama film directed by Ridley Scott and written by David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. Cue Amazing Music by Hans Zimmer as well. <laughs>
1: We could, yeah. We'll put a little sting in and like, da, da, da,
0: And then I'm sitting there halfway thinking, Pirates of the Caribbean?
1: Yes. Also, once you make that connection, like once you realize that he basically just recycles the same theme for this and for pirates, you can't unhear it.
2: Nope. Yeah, it sounds exactly the same. <laughs> I can't I can't tell the difference. I really need to play them side by side. I can't tell I the difference. I can
0: because I had to play oboe for Pirates of the Caribbean, which was my favorite <laughs> thing to play in high school band. Like so fun. So it's like I actually have that theme so ingrained in my memory that I can tell the actual differences, but it's very subtle.
1: They, they kind of start the same way, and I want to say like Pirates kind of goes on one direct, like they get to a fork and Pirates goes one way and, and Gladiator goes another, but it's, well, it's yeah, very much of a piece.
2: Pirates gets like much more whimsical and fun, mm-hmm. and yes. Gladiator gets like sad and dark and depressing.
1: (laughs) Speaking of, so we should really start. (laughs) So we're we're, we're here with just the three of us, no guests this week. And this is an episode that we've been kind of, I've been personally dreading since we started, because ever since we started this podcast, we know that like we've known that we've had to do Gladiator and we've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off so we could get better at the show or so we could get a cool fancy guest. But I've been dreading doing this because this is like probably – this like this movie is the reason our show exists yeah not to put too fine a point on it its impact on the sort of landscape of ancient movies and other or other media about antiquity like cannot be overstated yeah but i i don't know we'll we'll, we'll go around and then i'll come back to, to my thoughts but uh christy as the sort of uh, most fledgling member of the show yet yeah, do you dig gladiator
0: I absolutely dig this movie. We were talking about earlier of, I was trying to remember if I saw it in theaters. I I don't think I I did. I remember seeing Troy in theaters. I don't remember this one, but this is kind of one of those films that feels part of my childhood and my growing burgeoning interest in the ancient world that like it's really hard for me to pinpoint when it began. Um, I've seen it so many times and still find new things that, I absolutely love about it. And yeah, as you pointed out, Colin, this is like the starting point of so many other films that I did fall in love with. I do remember seeing in theaters and like got me really excited about visually getting to see this ancient world um in real life in an aspect which was so cool. Kind of I was reading myths already, so getting to see it was a whole new experience.
2: Yeah, I I mean, obviously I did Gladiator. I feel like it's so it's I, maybe that's why it's it's so hard to talk about. But I vividly remember the first time that I saw this movie. Uh, it was not in theaters. I think I was in high school, and it was on. I like sat on the floor, the carpeted floor of a friend's living room. Shout out to Karen Megan Held who <laughs> like showed me most good movies in high school. <laughs> um, and I remember being so excited. Just I feel like I had never seen a movie quite like this I had never like felt this enthusiastic about like a historical drama which I think in my head had always been like stuffy Jane Austen kind of movies which I was not into (laughs) at all (laughs) and this was like fun and exciting and it had like good villains that I could hate and like heroes that were fun to root for and so absolutely I feel like everything since then since 2000 has been trying to be gladiator and still like are you not entertained is has become a meme in its own way (laughs) right like do people still remember where that comes from
1: This movie, I guess, I don't know if they realize themselves, but this movie is just chock full of, like, incredibly quotable moments.
2: Yes.
1: I mean, I still think constantly about the, like, you sold, sold me, me queer <laughs> <drafts."> Um
2: <laughs> Every time, every time. Yeah. So,
1: this is, this is funny because this is usually reverse, a reversal because I feel like usually the shape or the arc of an episode is like me slowly trying to convince Eli that she, like, secretly likes a movie and... <laughs> I am going to have to be a little bit of the naysayer. I have, well, it's not that I dislike or I don't dig this movie, but I have like incredibly mixed feelings about this movie. And it has somewhat to do with the movie itself and a lot to do with the afterlife of this movie and sort of where I was and you know, how people have been responding to this movie for the last like 20 odd years. Mm -hmm. And like you two, you know, if you were to ask Colin, between ages like 12 and 17, what do you thought about Gladiator? I would be like, this movie slaps. Like, best movie, <laughs> fantastic. I'm pretty sure – I I think my cousin showed it to me. I had a cousin who was a little bit older, and and I was, you know, I was, I think, 10. I'm pretty sure we watched it on DVD, so I was probably like 11 or 12 when I saw it for the first time, and I was like hooked. And I think part of the reason I kind of am a, a little bit wary of this movie now is like because of – the 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 kind of in like this movie like sparked not only just you know all sorts of copycat or not just copycat but sort of follower movies and 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 media but also like it sparked an interest in the ancient world but it also it sparked a particular kind of interest in the ancient world I think among a particular kind of person. (laughs) So I was afraid as I was revisiting, because I'd seen this movie tons of times and I hadn't seen it probably about at least five years. And I was like, am I going to hate this movie now? Particularly because I think sort of critical consensus, people have kind of turned on this movie a little bit in the last 20 years. Like it, it won Best Picture and it's one of those wins that people kind of look back at the Academy Awards and they're like, eh, Gladiator, you know, or a little they're a little embarrassed for or something. I mean, maybe the 73rd Academy Awards weren't, you know, exactly stacked but people have have kind of turned some people have kind of soured on this movie a little bit and i was wondering if i was going to be one of those people because that is exactly the kind of you know critical viewer that i am where i tend to sour on things and i found myself like not loving it as much as i did 20 years ago but not hating it as much as i feared i would
0: it's
2: a very middle of the road response colin and
0: i think why elijah and i still might like it so much versus, like, what is problematic is, of course, the story itself. And, like, Mm -hmm. the history is... A little like it's a myth history for sure it's a lot of things being thrown together not wholly accurate um, to the point that i'm sure we'll talk about how you know there are many scholars roman scholars that were consulted for this film but i like researched a bit more and like some of them were so upset with some of the historical changes being made that like one quit and another one's like don't put my name in the credits so like there's definitely that element but in terms of the world that was created and like the lari's and yeah, Lucilla's earrings and just like so much of the material world that us as archaeologists love to see because like still those over that aerial overhead shot of the Colosseum yeah, the first yep. time it's just like yes it's so <laughs> beautiful and I love it like that is you know that's just it I've seen it so many times I kind of tune out the story anymore I I love the quotes I love Commodus. Russell Crowe, as Maximus, can kind of take it or leave it, honestly. But like, (laughs) just looking up and seeing these little things in the background, I'm like, "Ah, this is beautiful. Let's keep doing this. And um, I think that's the disconnect is like, if you're really focused on the history, it's problematic. If you're focused on the actual world building that Ridley Scott was doing here, uh, it still takes my breath away a lot of the times.
1: And this is, as I was watching sort of behind the scenes interviews with the writers and, and producers, they were talking about why Ridley Scott was on the short list. Of directors for this movie, so like the basic origin is David Franzoni, the writer. He he sort of read a book called "Those Who Are About to Die," sort of a '50s kind of adventurous, little schlocky, and was like, "This would be a good idea from a movie." And he worked on Amistad with Steven Spielberg, who had just started DreamWorks Pictures, and pitched this this idea to to Spielberg. And, you know, at this point, there hadn't been a a sword and sandal film for something like 40 years, like the last ones were in the mid 60s, maybe. Mm -hmm. And people were generally like, it's a dead genre. And they eventually, so they 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 went to Ridley Scott and they brought supposedly they brought this painting Polyque Verso, or, you know, which means like thumbs down is the English translation. It's a picture of a a gladiator kind of looking up into the audience, you know, and the audience is gesturing to 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 kill a guy. And supposedly Ridley Scott during the pitch just kept like looking at the painting, which tracks or anyone you know who's, who's watched a lot of Ridley Scott movies would know that he's a very sort of visually invested filmmaker, and so. Everything Christy was just describing about the sort of the visual and the the spectacleness and the kind of painterliness of this movie, like I think, very much tracks with Scott as a director. And then the because literally this movie is, I mean, we can talk about that. This movie is kind of based on almost every sword and sandal film ever, yeah, but sure. but it's also like kind of based on a painting.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see it. <laughs> like the minute you mentioned the paintings, like I know exactly which one you're talking about, yep, and I yep. see it in this film.
1: That right there is really the genesis of the movie because so this movie had sort of a bit of a tortured origin and how the script got written even to the point that there were stories that the actors were going in for table reads and the script wasn't even done and they were sort of very much building the plane as they flew. I mean, which happens with a lot of movies, but this one was like the script was very much undercooked by the time they were going into like principal photography and things like that
2: which usually is a bad sign, I feel like.
1: Yeah, and I think it does kind of show because there's there's basically three writers that took a pass on this film. Dave Franzoni, John Logan, and then Will Nicholson. And they each kind of brought a different thing to the script. And Franzoni more or less sketched out the basic plot. And it's very much sort of, it follows a, a 1964 movie, Fall of the Roman Empire, where there's Marcus Aurelius dies, his son Commodus takes over. There's this general who Marcus loved more than his son. And the general has an affair, or not an affair, but has a relationship with Marcus Aurelius' daughter. And it sort of ends with the the general fighting uh Commodus in the arena. Like if the plot by plot points, it's very similar to Fall of the Roman Empire. And also there's a lot of Spartacus, like pretty much everything involving mm-hmm. the gladiator training and yep. all that stuff. Yep. That's very Spartacus-esque. Even the the main sort of gladiator battle is very much An homage to the Ben Hur chariot race and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I had a thought at one moment when they were, when Maximus revealed himself to Commodus in the arena and then he's like going out and they're all chanting Max. I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, (laughs) commander of the Felix Legions. (laughs) Yeah. I I
1: claim I don't like this movie, but I know every line.
0: it's, It's the most quotable thing ever. My, I think still my favorite one is like, is it over? Did I miss the battle? You missed yeah. the war. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in that speech, when supposedly when the the line where he says like, and in, in this life or the next, I will have my vengeance or something like that, supposedly Russell Crowe didn't want to say that line. He thought mm-hmm. it was like too schlocky. They had to like <laughs> twist his arm to get him to say it.
2: I mean, it is pretty schlocky, but it's so great because I feel like one major like story arc is this like vengeance story, which I love a good revenge story. And maybe that's what sort of carries it for me, because I think there isn't really a love story, which I also kind of like that that doesn't exist, but it's like, it has like, almost like they could have been making it a love story.
1: As a kid, I had completely blocked the romance subplot from my mind. Like as a young person, if I were to recount the plot from Gladio, I completely forgot that
3: barely there right yes it
1: is and so this is a kind of one of those elements of the like this movie had sort of three lives as the script was being made and they added something different and it actually it doesn't all totally stitch together seamlessly so like in the original one franzoni's version Maximus's family is still alive, and the the general thrust of the plot is him trying to escape Gladiatorum to get back to his family. It's a trying to get home. It's almost like Twelve Years a Slave or something like that. It's like right. trying to escape servitude or, to yeah. get to, yeah. to get back. And then the next writer, John. Logan, he was the one that's like, no, we got to kill the family and to give him some kind of motivation. And then the third writer, Will Nicholson, basically, he got the script because the script was still like there was a, a missing element. And Nicholson was like, this is a story about a man who wants to kill another man. (laughs) <laughs> which is not a movie that I'm particularly interested in seeing. It's purely a revenge story. We need some other element, so he primarily added the, the the sort of afterlife element among a few other things of Maximus wanting to go home to his family via death. But then there's also this romance subplot, which I'm pretty sure somebody just added. Like, so it's like, well, we need to appeal to you know women or something. So like, let's add a romance.
0: <laughs> well, um. some of this I don't. I learned this as I was watching there has been talks of a sequel to this film forever oh my god
1: yes do you know about the yeah and How?
0: and as of okay ridley scott is now 83 years old just put is out he the last really? duel yes just mm-hmm. put out the last duel he's working on a napoleon but he says after napoleon gladiator 2 is happening do so this, you know- as of november
1: No, there is a script. Well, no, the early there was talks of a script for Gladiator 2. Do you know about this, Christy? Yeah.
0: yeah. Well and like Tell me, tell me more. It's almost as dramatic as the first script, it seems like, because Russell Crowe still wants to be involved, so they're like trying to figure out, all right, how can we have him here? Maybe we'll have a mystical afterlife version of him. No. There is talks of, like, the sequel is going to be 25, 30 years after the events of this one, and it's going to be around um, Lucius Varus, and we find out that, oh, actually, that whole romantic subplot actually happened, where Maximus did hook up with Lucilla, and that's actually his son, and so whatever that means. And last heard, Chris Hemsworth is interested, so I'm like... Gladiator with Prince Hemsworth. I don't know what would happen in this, but do I want it? Do I not want it? I kind of want to see it happen, but... (laughs)
1: There's an even wild. So there's actually somebody. So Nick Cave wrote a, a sequel script. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but he sort of sarcastically is like, no, it's amazing. Um, but he wrote it for <laughs> Russell Crowe. But it was called um, Gladiator 2. And I think the tagline for it for a while was "Christ Killer," And it involved a like Maximus in the afterlife, like traveling through time. Yep. And like there's what? one point he goes to Vietnam or what? like goes to the White House. And <laughs> like, he, made, he wrote the script like mostly as just like, this is never going to get made. And it's mostly a joke and supposedly showed it to Russell Crowe, who his response to it was, "I don't like it." Um,
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure Ridley Scott wasn't on board for that either.
1: <laughs> Somewhere out there in the weeds, there is like a Gladiator two script.
0: Oh my god, that's like the
2: the weird medieval versions of Alexander, where he like goes to the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. or he like goes to the moon, and. He's mm-hmm. as an astronaut. Oh, see, that I would actually want to see more than an actual just straight up. T- it's 20
0: years later. <laughs> it is literally 20 years later. What are we going to get from that? Like, uh. Especially because, yeah, you could kind of bring Russell Crowe back somehow in flashbacks or something, but no. you can't bring back Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus, and that's what I would want. And other fun note, the Napoleon film that Scott is doing Joaquin Phoenix is in that so I'm like okay maybe who, that. Do you know who he is? I really hope he's Napoleon but I don't know I just really I found know. all of this out
1: today. I don't know enough side characters in like the Napoleon story to like know who to like pinpoint who he could be like, I you know, know. Like,
2: he Joaquin seems Phoenix too old Napoleon. unless yeah, it's I like Napoleon in exile or
0: something right? Yeah. I don't know who knows? Mm. who knows but like again Ridley Scott's 83 he's got another big project already in the works I don't know if we're ever gonna get Gladiator 2. That's fine. Dude
1: smokes cigars like they're going out of style. Like you can see <laughs> <laughs> whenever he's on set, he's always like, he's like got the camera in one hand and like a giant cigar in the other. It's
0: a vibe for
2: sure.
1: I'm trying to think if there's something I left unsaid about the like pre production, because it had a while, it had a sort of weird pre production, but like not all the parts I think totally hang together. Mostly because I think this movie languishes in the middle bit where there's a huge chunk of the movie where Maximus's sort of motivations are unclear. But actually, let's rewind because we really talk about this film sort of in sequence because we really got to talk about the opening scene.
2: Which is great, which is brilliant and wonderful and an awesome piece of like cinematic battle. Whatever. I don't even have a word for it. I just remember being blown away by the Mm -hmm. beginning of this movie.
0: Even with the pyrotechnics, which are false, (laughs) but like you gotta have fire in the battle. I don't care.
2: I, I I liked the how awful it was. It's like, it mm. was, it really leaned into the, this is gross and disgusting and there's mud everywhere and people are, you know, dying. And afterward when they like wash all the blood off their hands and they're just drenched in black gore and goo, it's just, it made it really gross and really real. Um, and I love that.
1: I mean, this, this, another movie that this movie is sort of silently in debt to is saving private Ryan. Cause this is, oh, the, yes. this is, this is the ancient Saving Private Ryan sort of opening, you know. And I think it does – I think I really like the way it sort of escalates and sort of ramps up the tension where you see the Romans kind of – everyone's kind of waiting before the battle. The general's kind of doing their little last-minute checks, the plan. And then it, it sort of – I think it does a good job of setting up, but like, you know, they've got – and introducing our characters, like, they've got a plan. They're executing the plan.
2: There's a dog.
1: Yeah, there's a dog.
0: Which – I learned is accurate. They did have dogs in the army to go on patrols and stuff and supposedly sometimes in the battle. But like Romans like their dogs. We'll give it to them.
1: For, for me, it, it breaks down in the, the last time, like the very I mean, this is a purely just preferences thing. It's like it's where it, like at the, the kind of very end of the battle sort of devolves a little bit into like, I have no idea. I mean, and this is deliberate like the way it's cutting and moving around and the way it uses it, it, it this movie does it occasionally does a thing where it goes into slow motion and then like the picture gets really like grainy or something like something kind of weird happens to the picture and so the end of the battle is a little muckety-muck but it's, it's completely sort of you know if that floats your boat but there's a, this is another thing about like this movie comes under like a lot of attention for it's like historical actually, but this movie isn't, I mean, it's not in any way trying to necessarily be historical accurate. This movie is really like a crystallization or an update, not necessarily of ancient Rome, but of like a particular vision of ancient Rome that owes its origins to like the mid century sword and sandal films. Like it is really an updated version of Ben-Hur and Covatus and fall of the Roman empire and stuff like that. And that's really inspiration. And, but for some reason, I'm mean, not for some reason, but this is one of those movies that I think particularly inspires like historical nitpicking. Like, if you go to the Wikipedia, this movie has a massive like two section yeah, thing all about like anachronisms mm-hmm. and historical accuracy. And lots of people have like, there's a whole podcast dedicated to discussing the historical accuracy of this movie, which like TLDR, it's not very historically accurate either in its plot or in a lot of the kind of like, costuming and weapons and things like that. But that's this movie is a very – it, like, crystallized, I think, or it recrystallized the, like, American interpretation or, like, Mm -hmm. modern media interpretation of Rome just again.
2: I know I think we talk about how, like, Alexander and maybe something else, like, they leaned so far into the historical accuracy that it really lost something in the storytelling, and I feel like this movie does a good job of actually telling – A story or like I felt tension in this battle or like I was Mm -hmm. worried about the characters that I just met two seconds ago Mm -hmm. I was worried about the dog that I didn't really (laughs) you know I just met Mm -hmm. so I feel like yeah the tension in the storytelling even I could kind of care less about historical accuracy at that point because it did a good job
1: I mean even like the chant that the the chant that the the Germans do is actually straight up lifted from this movie Zulu, um, where like the Zulu warriors are attacking the British and they do this particular chant. It's like the exact same chant that they're doing. And there's other That's things. So that actually, a, a fun fact I learned. The standard or like the flag thing that the German chief is carrying—it's got a mask on it from the movie Zardos, <laughs> which is a movie I'm obsessed with. This it's 1970 sci-fi with Sean Connery. That's just like I, if I tried to describe the plot right here, I would sound like a madman. But it's wild. But it's got like a prop from Zardos in it. <laughs> All this weird stuff.
0: I was so when we talk about this movie, it it is very interestingly positioned in this renaissance of. Sword and of Sandal films because it was released in 2000 before 9/11, and then after 9/11, you do get like 300 and Alexander, which has this very strong, you know, message of cultural superiority of the West versus the East mm-hmm. coming to like take over that. And there's this line, "People should know when they're conquered." Would you, Quintus? Would I? And that was that was something I was kind of reflecting on while watching this. And kind of the conversation we had with Chiara when we were watching Cleopatra, where, like, that one is, like, showing the Romans being obscenely violent. And, like, I was kind of questioning this, too. Like, this is our vision of Rome, but this is Rome. Like, our main person is the Spaniard. Like, yes, he's part Mm -hmm. of Rome, but he's also outside of Rome. And, like, Rome is actually very problematic because it is conquering people and people are resisting. And... Rome is corrupt and something needs to change. It's kind of like this huge underlying message that I don't know would have been present after 9 mm-hmm. 11 if it had come out. So, like, this this movie is very interestingly placed in that it did kickstart a whole new sword and sandal thing, but it didn't have that undertone that came with 9 11. So, mm-hmm. I was wondering what you guys yeah. kind of thought about that. Like, what, especially because Rome keeps being talked about as an idea that we're trying to get back to, but what is it and how do we get to it
2: well yeah cuz Marcus Aurelius says something to to Maximus like you've never even been to Rome like what do you what do you know about Rome and it's like the first time Maximus does go to Rome he is as a slave which i think is a really interesting way to position the hero of the story and the villain being the Roman emperor which maybe in more in the 60s like that was a pretty having an evil Roman emperor Against say like the Christians that made a little bit more sense to have that antagonist, but I love that there's no like real religious overtones in this. It's uh, set, what is it supposed to be in like 180? I know yeah, I know that it's like not that. actually, but um, whatever. So there's no like big drama that like seems to happen religious-wise, or they don't talk about it, which is kind of refreshing. Uh, But it's still, I have this big question of, like, the corruption, Mm -hmm. um, which I do like. And, like, Marcus Aurelius seems tired of it all. He's like, what did we do this for? Like, why are we here? And that, I think, is something that we definitely didn't see, say, in, like, The Last Legion, which was, like we are Rome and now Rome is Britain or like, what what does that mean? And nobody's questioning that. And so I think it's cool that there is a question mark there, even if the rest of the movie didn't maybe fully. It didn't get
0: answered for sure. No, it didn't get
2: answered. But that's also kind of what I like is Mm -hmm. that it's just asking the question. It's not really trying to answer it.
1: I was, I was reminded like of, of a bunch of things just then, which is like – because one of the notes that I wrote down was like, is this movie positing that like Rome is a good idea? And it like seems to be soft, like with a soft yes. Because the, the way this movie ends is essentially like, well, now Commodus is dead and we can get back to, you know, the good stuff and we can recreate Rome and sort of fix it up. Which when, it's interesting when you compare it to older versions, like particularly – fall of the roman empire. The basically the end of that movie is the hero sort of basically goes goes off with with Sophia Loren, his love interest, and there's a voiceover monologue that's basically like this is the beginning of the end for Rome. From here it's just going to fall into like decadence and corruption and 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 war and it's going to go all downhill or like in the end of i claudius claudius has this kind of reflection where he's like f it all i'm just gonna let nero be emperor because like i know nero sucks but like i've been in this sort of system of the scheming and the backstabbing and the political intrigue and like i tried to be a good emperor or whatever that means but like i just kept getting sucked down and like is it even worth it and he's just kind of like ah i don't even care anymore um like maybe this is all a bad this is all a bad exercise and like you know, it ends on like kind of a nihilistic note. Uh, and I think this movie sort of almost has to end. It doesn't have to. I think its its creators think it has to end on that note because the creators going in were very much of a mind that like Rome is America, you know. the And I think even in the pitch, Franzoni pitched to Spielberg. He said like, look, this isn't a movie about ancient Rome. This is about L.A. a thousand years ago. Or 2000 years ago and you know the coliseum is dodger stadium and this is really about us it's about a culture obsessed with you know entertainment and spectacle and it's losing sight of you know the stuff that really matters and it also tracks with with ridley scott who you know if you've watched a bunch of other ridley scott movies a common recurring enemy in, in scott movies are giant corporations like he's really down on you know, even though he's an individually quite wealthy man, he really does not like giant rich corporations like they're the villain in Alien. They're the villain in Blade Runner. I mean, even like Robin Hood, his Robin Hood movie, it's kind of about and, you know, is very much, I think, retreading a lot of these ideas. So I don't know. Yeah, like this is like Rome is night. This idea of Rome is an idea. And it reminds me also my last sort of little plug is there's like a, a sort of anecdote that, some reporter supposedly goes up to Gandhi, and he's like, "Well, like, what do you think about Western civilization?" And Gandhi supposedly says, well, "I think it's a good idea. Somebody should try it." And I feel like that's kind of Rome in in this movie, right? Like, Rome is an idea, but it doesn't actually—it's not lived out in any sort of reality. It's like a Platonic form, like it just exists in your mind. But and it exists in, in Maximus's mind. He's like, "Yeah, Rome is you know civilization. We're bringing truth to these like freaking savages in the woods."
0: but he just wants to go home at the same time. It's like, I have to do this. I'm obligated to do this, but really, I just want to go home. There, there was one other line that really got to me today, too. It was a conversation between Lucilla and Commodus um, where they're arguing like the use of the Senate to begin with. And mm-hmm. I think, what is it? Leave the people there. And Commodus goes, illusions? <laughs> and she, refer- she goes, traditions? I'm and I'm just sitting here being like, ouch, that yeah. is... Of the Senate in a, a nutshell right now.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was true that, I mean, yeah, by that point and even now, yeah, but the Senate is very much a sort of an artifact. You know, it's the appendix of Rome or whatever. They weren't really doing much.
0: Sorry, that was my, like, ooh, Commodus might be right for once here. Not in, like, where he's taking that conclusion, but just that general statement kind of, like, I see it. I understand it. And... Like, that's what I kept going back to. It's like, what was going on in 2000 that this could be reflective of America and our politics at the time and where we were on the world stage? Because so much of when I grew up was after 9 11. And like, that really mm-hmm. was a marked change in our place in the world or like America's place in the world and how they viewed it. So it was, it was so hard for me to contextualize this.
2: I feel like there's this huge obsession with like mob rule, right? Or of like this. Uh, sway of the masses and maybe, Rome is the mob yeah Rome is the mob and then I wonder if that's sort of like the growth and the real like explosion of social media and the internet and it's like wide availability like that in the later 90s like really really grew exponentially and so this probably could have been seen as the obsession with entertainment but also like this obsession with hive mind sort of creations of like you know the the cult of celebrity thing that sort of would could grow from nothing
1: or reality even like stars like some, are, yeah like re, i mean the late 90s early 2000s i guess we're getting the rise of maybe reality tv but mm-hmm. also like entertainment news i feel like it's kind of hitting sure. peak form like yeah fox news is kind of in its stride by this point or is mm-hmm. about to be the sort of sensualization sens- of everything, mm-hmm. particularly like, yeah, entertainment and sports and news, and it's all becoming, you know, and we're in this like point of and I think, you know, in, in 1999 or whatever, you know, the Clinton years in America is kind of like peak, you know, capitalism.
0: Well, and he just been he was impeached in 1999, too. So there was that whole mm-hmm. celebrity scandal with politics happening.
1: hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think there's just an idea and I got to think about like, are we too addicted to almost like a like a Fahrenheit 451 or something like that? Are we too addicted to yeah dumb media or something like that? Which is ironic because if this movie is saying that we are this movie like is part of the problem, right? Like this movie. Like, I think that's one thing about this movie that it's like, it, it, I think it maybe acts like it's really smart. Or this is, I think, uh, Roger Ebert's review about it kind of came down. He's it. like, this movie acts like it's so smart, but it's in fact quite not.
2: Well, it's like we are we are also part of the crowd at the Coliseum, mm-hmm. right? Like, we are enjoying watching the mm-hmm. the fights that are happening. We are also participating in this, like, consumption of violence, which is definitely like, I remember sitting on the floor of my friend's living room, like being like, oh my God, he just cut that guy's head off with two swords. And I thought that was so
0: cool. Mm-hmm. And the question, like the, are you not entertained? Like, yes! is that not what this is all about? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it's really maybe saying it's
2: something, but it's doing something else.
0: Yeah. Well, and the, there is a moment at the same time where, like, you know, Commodus, when Maximus reveals himself in the arena, is like, I really want to kill him. But, like, at that moment, everyone's like, the Spaniard, he's awesome. Like, let him live. And, like, he has to, like, slowly do the... Yeah, I know. But- <laughs> <That's good. laughs>
1: yeah, and you can and see, like, like his...
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not that it existed at the time, but you can equate that to cancel culture. Thing. Like when mo- mobs get together and focus on a single, mm-hmm. it is powerful. It can bring the most powerful individuals or corporations, whatever, it can bring it to their knees for a hot minute. But like, mm-hmm. I guess it's like herding cats. Like how do you actually get that mm. much people involved?
1: I mean, there's multiple speeches About and then sort of what's a Derek Jacoby, you know, which is also, again, like another like looking to eye Claudius, but they have Derek Jacoby. He's like, yeah, like Commodus is actually like cleverer than I thought. Like he's figured out Rome and, you know, and really this all goes back to. I guess a, like a juvenile poem, um, juvenile the author, not like juvenile. You know, isn't childish, but this Roman author, juvenile who says he famously coins the term "bread and circuses." That you know, all, Rome is all about. You know, if so long as the emperor can provide food and entertainment for the masses, then like you are good. That's all you really need to like keep yourself keep yourself on top. And this is this actually the first time I watched the extended scene. And there is one scene because another critique I think sometimes of this movie is that like, you know, Commodus is like a is like a creepy weirdo, but it's it's unclear that like is Rome actually suffering under him? Um, Because we actually see very little of Rome proper. We get the sort of gladiator barracks. We get the Senate. And we get the creepy, you know, in the palace intrigue of Commodus. But sort of at the surface level, it seems like the Romans are doing like they're they're doing fine. But there is an extra scene where Lucilla basically kind of explains that Commodus is actually like bankrolling all of the games with all of the the grain reserves or Mm -hmm. something like that. And like the the people are going to starve in two years Mm -hmm. uh, or that he doesn't really care about actual like boring civic management, like building sanitation and, you know, that kind of stuff.
2: No, I thought I really like I like the extended version a lot. I think mm-hmm. part of it is the inclusion of that scene because one, it sort of gives Lucilla something else to do because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of times she's just sort of standing there and looks tragic. Um,
0: <laughs> you could have been a Caesar, but you're a woman.
2: <laughs> but you're a woman, and, and so that, like,
0: that was about it. <laughs> and that's about it, right? So I
2: like this scene because it's really her actively thinking about the future and about politics and about what she can actually do about it. Um, She's like, I know that we need to feed the city. And like, I know that we need to have like these actual boring everyday civic things happen because we are a functioning city. And so I really like that. It gives her sort of that, the showing that she can actually be this person. And that could have been this ruler without, you know, just telling us, but also I think, yeah, it does give another level to there's something happening under the surface of all of this, that everything looks all fun and happy and we're all yelling in the Coliseum, but that we don't see that daily life. And so I like that there is that glimpse of something else terrible is happening. So I wish that had been in the regular version. I think it was a really important scene. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And You know, there there's this question going to the historical accuracy of like so much that was written by Commodus was written by senators of who he was not on good terms with but like you know this germanic invasion that his father was dealing with for decades as soon as his father died he's like paid them off and now they're not a problem and so it, you, there is a big question of like is he actually a bad ruler he's not a stoic like that you very clearly see marcus aurelius is a stoic and commodus is not that so it's a completely different philosophy, a different approach, but it's not necessarily wrong. And this cuts it way too short. Like he dies very quickly. He he really? ruled for, I think, almost really two years with time. his father and then a long period after. Lots of people tried to kill him, including his sister, which they kind <laughs> of low. do, but like don't play that out, which I think would have been more fun than yeah. threatening her son. We
1: should maybe talk a little bit about the Marcus Aurelius and Commodus too, because like exactly yeah. to, to Christie's point, like like with many emperors sort of our sources are – you know, you got to keep at arm's length sometimes because they're they're definitely working an angle. And Commodus mm-hmm. is kind of particularly tricky because the main source on him, or one of them, is the Historia Augusta, which is a sort of notoriously untrustworthy source. Yeah, People yeah. argue today of like whether or not we should, you know, trust it at all because it's yeah. kind of a wild. But, but a lot of the accounts of Commodus really dwell. On, and even like in Joaquin Phoenix is almost, this movie goes a lot, goes a long ways to really kind of humanize Commodus mm-hmm. in a way that, Mm-hmm. The historical sources of him are not in, remotely inclined to do they dwell on like all of his various depravities and the you know creepy stuff you, you know people that he want he was trying to kill and the one of the sort of supposed inspirations behind maximus is this character narcissus who was mm-hmm. commodus's wrestling partner who actually was the one supposedly who killed commodus by strangling him in the bath mm-hmm because there was an intrigue, there was a plot. Basically, I think Commodus's mistress supposedly like saw a list of names of people who were going to who would be killed, and hers was right at the top. And so, <laughs> she entered into a conspiracy and got Commodus's wrestling partner to uh, to kill him. But Commodus himself is one of the things that's sort of most famous about him is that he was a huge enthusiast of the games mm-hmm. and a very famous sculpture of him features Commodus in this dressed like Hercules, where he would like to go into the arena dressed as Hercules, and and fight and particularly actually kill animals. He was big into the beast hunts.
2: Mm-hmm. Which I kind of love. I don't know, I can definitely like see a version of Commodus who's like really cool. Who's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the I know people say this about Nero as well. He's kind of like the the rock star or like the jock emperor who's like out there in the arena and it's like what if the president played like in the nfl what
1: if we larped yeah.
2: <laughs> that's like
1: literally what commodus commodus was just larping basically in front of the whole city which was pretty scandalous because also he was larping with enslaved individuals which adds a sort of oh, spin. yeah on there's a total but level. he
0: was he was loved by the people for that it was the senators and the higher class people sitting there like oh god i can't laugh because i'll I'll be killed by this crazy guy, but like he was beloved by people for that.
1: This is also like I think a Ridley Scott thing because I don't know. Have you all have you seen his Robin Hood movie? Yeah, because it has a similar bit where Oscar Isaac is playing a very Commodus esque figure. His Prince John is like this Mm -hmm. creepy little twerp, and it's the landed gentry, like the nobles, who are like kind of the heroes of that movie. Like they're the voices of reason and they're the ones who advocate for basically the Magna Carta and this kind of like division of power, but you know, primarily among the sort of elite, like at the, the aristocracy or something like that. And I feel like there's a similar thesis going on here where like the idea is that, yeah, like guys like, Derek Jacoby and the other senator, Gaius, who I think also is not by accident named Gracchus. You know? oh, yeah. Anytime there's <laughs> oh, some kind of like populist <laughs> senator, they're always named Gracchus yep. <laughs> after the actual populist senators who lived hundreds of years before Commodus. But these are the guys that really should have been in charge of the city. They're a sort of like father knows best kind of energy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like monarchy's bad, but aristocracy good.
2: Yes. So there's like there there is a right way to do this. And it's not what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. And it also,
1: I mean, it does massage the point where they have a thing where like, well, we are the people. We are elected by and for the people, which if you ever study sort of Roman history, you'll know that the Senate isn't really elected by and for the people. They're their kind of own landed gentry class. They're sort of historically from the noble families. And you can enter into their ranks by achieving a certain degree of political office. But it's more of a position you get sort of by birth, wealth and status, as opposed to like. You know, there's other government positions that do speak for the plebs or the people at Mm -hmm. large, but they're not the Senate necessarily. And and again, that's another just collapsing, I think, of Mm
0: -hmm. late
1: 20th century democracy and late Mm -hmm. second century democracy. (laughs) You know, their Senate is our Senate.
0: There there was something in this mix, too, that I was really struggling to, again, contextualize for the time where, like... Marcus Aurelius and the other senators are representing like this idealized Rome of the past that's not corrupt and it's the Republic. And then you have Commodus, who's very like, he is populist and mm-hmm. um, the emperor and just having the power invested there. And then you have Maximus as a military leader who is beloved and has earned the respect of his soldiers, but and eventually the crowd by being a gladiator. So it becomes a populace. But like, that was just it. It was like, what is the commentary here about the role of a military leader stepping in? And
1: Because if you think about like, if this plan were to be enacted today, it would be kind of horrifying, right? Because mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. Yeah. Maximus and the senators get together and they say, we don't like the emperor. So we're going to get this general whose soldiers are going to be more loyal to him than to whoever their uh, appointed commanders are. And we're going to just invade Rome, which... In Roman history, I bet it had happened a couple of times by yeah, this point. Yep, yep, I don't know, like what five or six. Like I don't That's know. Basically, how
0: Julius are, right? Caesar's move, right? Like, yeah,
1: and then after him, you had Vespasian,
2: and before and, him, Sulla. Like yeah, uh-huh.
1: yeah. There's there's ample precedence in Roman history to a point that that really becomes the kind of game after Commodus, where just a general would get popular enough, and his soldiers might declare him emperor, and sometimes more than one general might be declared emperor, and then. If an emperor basically couldn't pay the soldiers or particularly pay the Praetorian guard, who are the sort of bodyguards, then, you know, they would just execute him and bring in the next guy. There's also a subplot in the extended version a little bit about the Praetorians, Mm
3: -hmm. you know, kind of
1: embodied by the character of Quintus, the... Maximus' old friends and, yeah. and they kind of it's another it's a thing that I think like the movie touches on but never really like a lot of these themes I think the movie kind of play pays like glancing respect to it doesn't really delve into any of these ideas because it's like again not interested in being I Claudius or like a political thriller mm-hmm. you know but the Praetorians are also this very important force because I think in the extended scene mm-hmm. Derek Jacoby basically says like we can't just kill Commodus because the Praetorians you know will they're there and like mm-hmm. they'll, they're they're still protecting him,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but they don't end up interfering in the last. Yeah, moment. is is the turning
2: point at the end, right? Yeah. Where mm-hmm. it's like the the Praetorians are kind of the ones who decide, right? It's like yeah. They,
0: and, and I guess that's what's <laughs> scary because like you end so on like the only thing actually achieved is the vengeance and getting to go back to his family in the afterlife, but nope. this mm-hmm. whole question of. Who's taking over Rome? What's about to happen to Rome is so ambiguous that, like, mm-hmm. it, it makes me uneasy in a lot of ways. And I don't know why, because, like, historically, you know what happens, but. Yeah, it's the year of the five emperors where we get yeah. five turnovers yeah, in exactly. one year. <laughs> but it's, yeah, this question, like, it really does just end up with this question is like, we don't have the answer for you. It, military? No. Eh. Emperor? Eh. Senate? Eh. <laughs>
1: The movie ghosts us before we can we can really ask it. It's like, all right, we're good. All right, see you later.
2: (laughs) Can I talk about Commodus more?
0: Yes, and specifically,
2: Joaquin Phoenix. That that shot where he kind (laughs) of (laughs) goes just just all of his
1: all of his reaction. Eli's gesturing to her background, but all of his sort of reaction. I wonder. I really wonder how they did. They just put Joaquin Phoenix in a box, and they're like, okay, you're watching. a bunch You're of gladiator bunch stuff of go down shit. just like react to that like did yeah. they show him anything or was he like
0: <laughs> most of the characters felt so forget like even russell crowe is just kind of like a conduit for all these different motivations yeah but joaquin phoenix as commodus is the most creep-tastic like yeah like and when it comes to the sister moments
1: He's the one that really pops out of this movie, out mm-hmm. of all of them. This is kind of his big break, I would say. And he would mm-hmm. yeah, really sort of shine here now. And I think this is, again, like we, we talked about this when we were talking about Quo Vadis, And I think Spartacus is a bit of the exception to this. But a lot of the protagonists of these kinds of sword and sandal films are a little bit vanilla, maybe, or yeah. a little they're a little bland. They're kind of, you yeah. know, they're sort of like boringly great male figures. Yep. And I do want to talk about, like, maleness, because that's most of my problems with this movie involve, like, maildom, both in the movie (laughs) and outside of it.
2: But what I love about this, like, villain and hero sort of juxtaposition is it feels really real in that, like, Maximus is just sort of existing in the world, but he has everything that Marcus Aurelius wants in the next emperor and therefore like loves him more. And so it's like this green eyed monster on the side of Commodus that he wants so bad to be everything that Maximus just like is just like, or just, to have, be, yeah. or just has. And I, it just, it reminds me of the, <laughs> do you guys ever see Amadeus where it's like Mozart yeah, he's like Salieri. and Salieri? I love that dynamic of this just like, this horrible greed and then on the other side this like weird vengeance and these two push and pull against these characters who and like maximus is just like a dude he's vanilla very Mm -hmm. much so but commodus still like wants it all so bad it's like this contorted (laughs) oh i love it it's so good
1: (laughs) yeah and and like we do really start off with a bit of of empathy because you know you see where basically commodus says like i realize that I am not the son my dad wanted. And it eats him alive from the inside. And then even though in a similar way, like Peter Ustinov's Nero in in Quo Vadis, you Mm -hmm. know, is kind of equally this bombastic, but he's missing that kind of, that core. Like we kind of understand at least a little bit why Commodus is the little creep that he is.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Because it's all, it's really, this movie is kind of, I mean, this movie is about like five different things.
2: Yes. (laughs) but
1: But that's, you know, it's about like getting daddy's love. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, absolutely. Or, and it's also about, I would say Commodus like becoming Maximus yeah. in so many ways. Mm-hmm. It's like he he wants to become that because that's how he could get his father's yeah. love. So even mm-hmm. like down to the end, right? He's a gladiator in the arena fighting just like Maximus. Um mm-hmm. and he he can't even manage that. And it's, it's tragic yeah. and awesome and it's a great yeah. villain and I love it.
0: Yeah, and it's I I wonder I saw. I'm pretty sure it was on Wikipedia, so I don't know how much I trust this. But apparently, there were rumors, and it wouldn't surprise me that like he was actually the son of a gladiator because Marcus Aurelius's mm-hmm. wife got around or something. And I could see that just being like the kind of propaganda out there. But that also could have been something interesting to insert of like this question of not only can't earn his father's love, his mother's love, but or not mother, uh, sisters' love, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and affection. Like he, you could have really made him feel left out of the family because there's this question of his lineage and does he even have a a right to be there? So that could have been fun to play with. And I don't know how accurate that rumor is, but I could definitely see that the kind of stuff that senators who don't like him would definitely bandy about being like, Oh Oh, yes, this, and this (laughs) Mm -hmm. for sure. We've been all over the place so far.
2: No, I just really wanted to talk about Commodus.
0: (laughs) Well, I have a a favorite, like, actual gladiator fight that I want to talk about. So, like, maybe we could focus in on one of those and we could talk about gladiator fights in general.
1: We could talk about Lucilla, too.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's do Lucilla and then we can talk about favorite gladiator battles. Yeah.
1: So Lucilla, I think, is another. So here's a sort of, I think, very telling story about the the production and, and conception behind Gladiator, where in one of the drafts of the script... I think it was John Logan, the second writer. He had a scene where basically Lucilla at some point commits suicide. And then they were having a script meeting and they're talking about it. And Laurie McDonald, who was like the one woman in the production team, she was an executive producer. She comes in, she reads it and she goes, no effing way. Like you can't, like there's only one woman in this movie. You can't kill her. Cause no. let, like the family are barely characters. They're plot points. Yeah. And I think you could mm-hmm. say that they are, pretty good example of fridging because they they exist to die for mm-hmm. for maximus and lucilla almost went that way too and and her sort of like i was hinting at like my sort of main problems with this movie is sort of how broy it is and like the broeyness of the interest in rome that it inspired mm-hmm. which is like and i think again maybe born a little bit out of a place of self-loathing but like it it definitely feels like it was written by for and about dudes
2: well it yeah was which is weird that we like it so much <laughs> as women, I guess. I,
0: I don't know. I'd rather see women be almost wholly absent and like being like, we are operating in the world of men and men only. And then I, I can just focus on that for what it is.
1: Like if it was a movie about a submarine, you'd be like, all right, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Versus yeah. like having women, but like really poorly played. Like at least, yeah, Had had she committed suicide, would have been upset. But like- yeah. The one woman they did include, and it, it, you know, in the grand scheme, it's a fairly small circle, all things Mm -hmm. considered. Yeah. So, like, I don't know why it doesn't bother me. It doesn't. Lucilla, as she's played in here, thankfully, is done pretty well, especially when you do get the extended scenes. And they really are just keep playing up this point. It's like you would actually make the better Caesar than your brother, but you're a woman. And I, I kind of appreciate that. It's like you could have been these things, but. This is, this is the reality of the Roman world. Mm-hmm. You just, you don't get to have that power. So I, I think that's why it works for me, is just an acknowledgement that, like, she can have all of these qualities that is what you would want in a leader, but it is her gender, and it's clearly called out that being like, nope, it disqualifies you, and that's not wrong for the time period. So maybe that's why it's, it works and it's okay for me.
2: Yeah, I feel like if they had maybe even tried to include her in a in a bigger role that sort of, uh, I don't know, illuminated the the weaknesses of male writers for an ancient female character, it would have been worse. But I mm-hmm. think, yeah, because of who she is and how it's played, I it doesn't bother me either. And I think at some point, they do kind of recognize also that as a woman, you can sort of fight your own fight in like... A certain type of way when she's like you never learned how to lie very well maximus and he's like well like you obviously did she's like well i had to to survive and so there's this like like manipulative like female behind the scenes sort of thing that they allude to but they don't really lean into it like we have other femme fatales maybe that that could have
1: her first couple scenes, she's very much like kind of Olivia, you know, character. She's like, "Oh, like, Commodus, stop your scheming!" And like, "I want a bath." And then she really the, and I guess it probably has to do when when they introduce the character of Lucius Verus, her son. And that, that softens her up a bit. Like it, it almost like her in the first sort of fifteen minutes of this film, basically, even up until when she has that conversation with mm-hmm. with Marcus Aurelius, is mm-hmm. is almost like it seems like there was almost a different version or something, or it's it's a, it paying homage to like the characters Eli was alluding to, like the Livia's yeah. of the world and mm-hmm. the Drusillas and whoever else.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think part of that felt true as well. Like when we initially meet her. It's with her brother who she doesn't feel safe around, and there is yeah. a very nice, polite version of ourselves that we present to men that we feel are dangerous mm-hmm. and then when we're with men we feel safe with, then you get more of the authentic and then all of the you know qualities that might be viewed as masculine or might be viewed in in a threatening way to men, mm-hmm. like you can let those out and so again like strangely enough feels authentic in in the way that's presented that's why it was so well it was so good that Joaquin played creepy so well Mm -hmm. of just like small touches that like I can feel that like I know exactly the you know (laughs) to be in those positions of like how do I handle this I put on my nicest face possible and get out as soon as possible and Mm -hmm. um
1: Anytime he's interacting with the sun, he's got it. It's a very like hair raising kind of. Yeah.
0: So again, like strangely, I don't know how they did Lucilla so well in that regard, but I think they did. It felt real and it wasn't necessarily empowering or anything. It was just realistic that Mm -hmm. made it relatable. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other characters we want to dive into?
0: Proximo? Proximo. Proximo.
1: Yeah. We should, uh, Oliver Reed. Another sort of one of this movie's weird legacies is Oliver Reed famously passed away mid-production and actually in sort of a wild story um, where he was in a drinking contest with a bunch of sailors. And I don't want to – I don't know how much of this is sort of libel, but he was sort of – he had a reputation as being a sort of prodigious drinker but sort of famously one of the kind of legacies of this movie is it's one of the first sort of digital body doubles for oh, his I final scene it. and i didn't notice, i like i didn't really notice it until i looked for it and then when i looked at it i couldn't unsee it because it is a weird <laughs> creepy cgi oliver reed between the bars looking at maximus <laughs> proximo for me i think is one of the characters that pops the most mm-hmm And is one of the more interesting characters for because he's this I think we talked in the Spartacus episode about the kind of characters in these gladiator schools or in these sort of systems of oppression that kind of buy into the system because like Proximo, you know, almost you would think that having been a gladiator, he would be kind of sympathetic to the plight of gladiators. But in fact, he's kind of the least he's like, you exist to entertain people and to die. And like, isn't that kind of awesome? (laughs) Yeah. And very interesting, He's just, he's got this like worldly quality to him or like a world weariness. Mm-hmm. You know, his commenting on the irony of that Marcus Aurelius, son, is the one that's revitalizing uh, Gladiator Games when Marcus Aurelius was the one who kind of put them out of business buying queer giraffes, all of that <laughs> stuff.
2: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think it's so easy for him to have been such a one-dimensional character because I feel like that's kind of what I'm thinking of the the Spartacus show- like what blood and sand or something. I feel Oh like...
1: yeah. Like the John Hanna character. Yeah. Or like... He's
2: mm-hmm. very, very one dimensional in that. And, and I love that there's so much more to Proximo and he's really like, you are rooting for him. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, he's kind of becomes a weird father figure, like after Marcus Aurelius, it's like this mm-hmm. transition and I, I love it so much. I think it's so great. <laughs>
0: and I think I think he's probably a really good representation of like that that was just true of there are people who were gladiators because they wanted they like what he talks about is kind of the high of the crowd loving you and mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite conversation between him and Maximus is like when they're talking about him gaining his freedom, and he's like Marcus Aurelius touched my shoulder, and Maximus just cracks up. It's like, oh, you know Marcus Aurelius It's like he touched my shoulder. I didn't say I knew him; just saying <laughs> I saw him. He touched my shoulder, and I. You I I say I knew
1: him. he touched me on the shoulder. <laughs>
0: yeah, like like to it was it was so interesting. Like that's such a cool moment to me because Maximus is like I know this emperor very intimately. But Proximo is describing what is a very important, almost intimate moment, even though there isn't that relationship between the two, but it's still such an important moment that Maximus can also relate to of like the significance Mm -hmm. of what it is for Marcus Aurelius to have touched you on the shoulder and given your freedom. Like he probably felt a, a strange connection there. Um, but he couldn't even say it in that moment either. I don't know why I think that moment is cool, but I really like it. Yeah. I do like that, too. and I think it also it plays
2: into a historical fact that like a lot of gladiators didn't die in the arena. Like plenty of them did. Yes. But it's also like it wasn't a death sentence. I feel like so much of the scenes that at least Maximus is and he just kills everybody. But gladiators were expensive slaves and they like, you know, were fed and trained and you put a lot of money into a human being which is terrible, but it's also like you don't want them to die immediately in one fight. Um, so there were gladiators who survived and who lived and who, yeah, still bought into that system.
1: It's a, it's a thing that the 1960 Spartacus gets into a little bit because when Crassus right. shows up with his family and they're like, oh, we want to view a fight to the death. And then Peter Ustinov's character, yeah, Badiatis, yeah, yeah. is like, oh, to the death? Like, like, uh, really? like that's really expensive. Okay, and then Kress is like, oh, don't worry, I'll I'll pay for it. And it's so like, they, it's not that the, like Eli said, any sort of reticence to sort of kill gladiators too quickly is born more out of a sort of an economic motivator rather oh, yeah. than a sort of humanitarian. No, it's not one. humanitarian at all.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I'm sure that's easily a big critique of this is just the amount of bloodshed. And that was interesting that the reluctance to not, because hundreds of thousands of people were killed in arenas, not just- mm-hmm in Rome, but all over and they mm-hmm. were prisoners, criminals. Um, so you mm-hmm. did have that much bloodshed, it just wasn't gladiators. But they I think for that again, that religious overtone that Elijah said like was absent, which was nice, is they mm-hmm. they didn't have the executions. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. would be, you know, stagecrafted sometimes if you mm-hmm. wanted to play out an elaborate battle or something, then you have your best fighters, just killing off a bunch of prisoners and criminals. And that was not a problem at all. Um, And they removed that. And like Colin, you talked about like the book this was based on Mm -hmm. those about to die. Yeah. Like 1958. And it, I guess it's described as a historical fiction that provides detailed and rather disturbing account of the lives and in-depth descriptions of sadism and torture forced upon gladiators, women, children, and animals by ruling Roman forces. So that was, the book that <laughs> this that's was based on wrong it, yeah and that's the thing it's like again it goes back to that question of like okay gladiators weren't dying but like so, so many, many people, other people mm-hmm. women children and animals like mm-hmm. extinction level events from yeah you know some of these yeah. animals being brought in yep. were happening and um like it's one of those do i get hung up over the fact that it's gladiators dying or do a, or is it, again, important to recognize that Rome, as part of being corrupt, is also just obscenely cruel yeah. mm-hmm. or spectacle, mm-hmm. right. which is pretty horrifying. And maybe, maybe we don't get hung up on the fact of the question of, well, do that many gladiators die or not? People died. A lot of people died. A lot of people died.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I actually realized there was like one particular scene I want to talk about too, but it might be the same one that Christy's thinking of, but I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Battle of Carthage?
1: Yes. Yeah. It is that one. How is it not that one?
2: How is it not that one?
1: (laughs) That is a pretty, I I maintain, I mean, some people also rag on the effects of this movie and I think, yeah, there's a couple of scenes that the CG is a little video gamey, but it bothers me less than I think it bothers some others.
2: Mm, I have two things that I want to say. One. I was still thinking just about, Christy, how you, like, recentered my comment about just, like, violence and, like, who is really dying and how I really enjoyed that. So, thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which also just really does lead into Carthage, this battle, and how, like, there weren't really any criminals. We don't see any, like scared people who are like, I don't know. Well,
1: Proximo mentions, he's like, why we got Carthage. These are pro gladiators. Yeah. Why don't you go round up all the prisons? And then the guy's like, we've done that. that, yeah. that, done that. He's like, yeah. We've done that already. And it's um, like, we
2: don't get to see that. And I, not that I necessarily want to see that, but I feel like the focus is definitely on not named characters. Cause they don't all have names, but just this, like this different level of maybe perceived importance And I think, yeah, so often we forget about like the real victims of so much of ancient histories, like wars and violence, Mm -hmm. which is definitely like lower levels of society, women and children all the time. (laughs) So thank you, Christy, for bringing that up.
0: Yeah, no, I like I said, I there was so much about this film that. The messaging really changes for later and Sandal films that like this one really leaves me flummoxed sometimes of mm-hmm. uh, how to interpret it. And, you know, this, this does bring me into the Battle of Carthage gladiator fight because this is where we get female gladiators, which mm-hmm. I'm so excited for and is a real thing. Yeah. Playing Romans. They're yeah. playing the Romans but, by any other standard, this is the most other kind of setup you would have, especially because Carthage is North Africa, and the three gladiator, female gladiators, gladiators, my land's terrible, forgive me, are all three black women, yeah, as archers on a chariot. And I'm like, all of this screams other mm-hmm. in, in a lot of contexts, but they are the Romans, but then they lose. And like, even like Commodus is like, isn't? There- is it Carthage supposed to lose, not not, not us? He's like, "Uh, yes, sir. I will talk to all the dead people in the arena about this."
1: This was the thing where, like, I was gonna say, if I had one like sort of historical nitpicky moment, this is the this is the thing that sort of bugged me. Although I'm sort of like rethinking at thinking it now, and, and I wonder if it is just if it's purely accidental. Because yeah, like like Christy's saying, like the battle is the battle of Carthage, where you have the Romans under Scipio Africanus fighting Hannibal. And then the – you know, in the movie, uh, Russell Crowe and friends are set up as the invincible barbarian horde. But then the Romans (laughs) – but I guess, again, the movie is not, like, shining. He says, like, the legionnaires of Scipio Africanus. And, like, I don't know if it's supposed to register for the audience that this is – that these women in chariots with bows and arrows are, like, supposed to be the Roman legionnaires. When, like, really, if anything, it would be the other way around. Like, the Mm -hmm. the dudes with the shields are more sort of Roman-esque than – not that Hannibal actually had, like, women in chariots with bows or anything, but, like, whatever. It is an odd sort of choice. I wonder, like, with because like, there's a reading, I guess, like, well, let, let's, like, read, like, what can we read out of it? Like, whether or not it was intentional or not. Yeah.
2: Well, there, or just there's... purely incidental. I had always read it as it was Scipio Africanus, so mm-hmm. it was, they were supposed to be, like, African uh, auxiliary mm-hmm. or something. And that's why they were black women and they were in chariots and i don't know why that's just what my brain put together
1: <laughs> i think you might be onto something cuz mm-hmm. i think basically someone was like scipio africanus okay africanus african and then you follow the steps there
2: yeah yeah well it is weird because like maximus is then like who's all been in the army and they all mm-hmm. line up like the romans he served with him like
0: yeah yep yeah. <laughs> i served with you sir oh <laughs> Okay. Ooh. Yeah, I'm like the barbarian <laughs> this never horde. never came
1: up. It's not.
2: <laughs> 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 but yeah, like the barbarian horde starts acting like the Roman army because Maximus is there, and yeah, Scipio Africanus' like auxiliary are not technically like Roman? Mm-hmm. Question mark. I don't know. That's how I kind of always read it, and that it was. That's why it was. Funny, and that's why Commodus was like, weren't we supposed to lose? Ah. <laughs> or whatever.
3: My, my
1: sort of neck beardy, like, um, actually kind of thing would be like, if I were to like, get in there, and I'd be like, well, this is really more like the Battle of Cari, where the Romans were <laughs> defeated by the Persians <laughs> with bows and arrows. <laughs> You know, but then I was like, well, they probably wouldn't want to do that because that's a battle where the Romans lose. Mm. But but, but actually did sort of play out a little bit like I think what was supposed to happen in this battle.
0: Yes. Well, and, and that's partly why we're starting with this movie, too, is, you know, it, a lot of it happens in Rome, but so much of it is taking out in the Roman provinces. And our protagonist is from a Roman province. And so, like, part of the question we could be asking, why is Commodus okay with it? Because – Scipio Africanus, how much would he have viewed him as Roman to begin with? Like definitely a Roman citizen, but there there's probably got to be this question of like those on the peninsula being like, you know, the original Romans and like this quickly you know, relatively quickly expanding territories of like just how Roman are you? And there's a lot of commentary, you know, the archaeologists look at it, is that you have noble aristocratic classes of people who come under Roman rule quickly adopt Roman culture because they want to maintain their positions of power. But people who are already in power, how do do they view that? Usually not very favorably most of the time. So like, is Commodus okay with this? Because ultimately he sees both sides as other and like whatever.
1: Occasionally in Roman history, a couple of times the Roman Senate gets expanded. And when that happens, it's a whole hubbub because, you know, a lot of these senatorial (laughs) families like, oh, we can trace our names back to one of the original, however many families that founded Rome or the Sabines who were basically the first people to join Rome, Mm -hmm. you know, and like we're from, you know, our old blood and we're like from a local, you know, we have local roots and local traditions and they're letting like, you know, Gauls or whoever into the Senate. Yep. And it's becoming a thing at this point in history, too, where we're getting emperors who are not even Roman. Trajan, I think, is from Spain.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The em- And because this is also a period right up before Marcus Aurelius where emperors are naming the successors. And it becomes almost a kind of meritocracy thing. And so you're getting people rise up to the ring. So it's not completely inconceivable that a guy like Maximus, you know, somebody from the provinces, he isn't sort of of uh, noble Roman lineage or italian even that he could you know become emperor or have a sort of high functioning level of government later we are going to get septimius everest who's from north africa you know, immediately after this
2: yep and then a whole slew of emperors from eastern europe like yep. danube region mm-hmm. later in the empire as well yeah so it's like it's almost easier to pick out like oh which emperors were ac- were born in italy
1: <laughs> yeah it, it, after a point it becomes very few
2: yeah very very few
1: And even Rome itself becomes of diminishing importance. Where I think Commodus, you know, Marcus Aurelius mentions in this film that, you know, he spent most of his reign at war, you know, on the Mm -hmm. frontier. And this becomes very much a kind of norm where emperors and their courts are kind of essentially moving around, putting out fires, Mm -hmm. you know, where they they spend very little time in the capital. Or, and at later, much, much later, the capital is going to be moved or sort of divided up. And there's going to be sort of little, sort of almost like forward operating bases throughout europe and and the near east and things yeah. like that
2: was it hadrian who spent like a total of four years in rome or something out of like
1: yeah i mean hadrian also largely he just like he loved well, greek he also shit. Yeah.
2: hated being in italy he was just yeah. like i want to go be in greece again <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: yeah but yeah it's, it's,
1: he spent a lot of time in athens i think among other places and yeah yeah even his his villa in italy is like an homage to greek art mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think that's why another reason I like this film so much is that it really did endeavor to like show just how multicultural Rome is at this point in time. Like, Mm -hmm. I haven't talked about it, but I learned that uh, Galen, who, you know, is from Pergamum originally, he actually served Marcus Aurelius. He got called to go to the front lines with him. This was after he'd been kicked out of Rome before because he pissed off all the other doctors but um, so he got called <laughs> to the front lines but when he got there Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, the original not the son both fled the front lines because of plague and I think uh, Verus actually passed away from that and my favorite story of this afterwards because of this movie is like so Galen is in Rome and Marcus Aurelius is like okay we're, we're going back to the front lines now he's like I just had a dream, and Asclepius said, bad idea. So I, I'm not going back to the front lines. And Marcus Aurelius is like, well, you know, yeah, if Asclepius says that, I, I can't take you to the front lines. Here, you take care of Commodus. And Galen hated it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just, I literally wrote "haha" in, in my ancient medicine book when I read that, because it, it cracked me up. So, um, But it, it goes to show, like, there is so much movement even to the periphery the front lines um happening at this time and i think this film actually did a really good job of like all right it it seems weird to think all right maximus made it to spain but now he's under us and now he's in north africa and then he's been imported to rome but originally he was in dealing with germany yeah yeah and it's like that actually can happen
1: yeah i definitely took out my phone and i was kind of curious of like how long would it take you to like ride a horse from germany to to spain or something like that and i think like on a bike nonstop biking it would take like four days or something like that. Like assuming you're not stopping to eat or sleep or do anything like right. that.
2: Well, that's, that seems doable. We could yeah, do it on Orbus. very doable.
1: Part of the problem is also we don't know exactly where he goes in Spain. That's um,
2: true. Or where but... he's – wait, do we know exactly where he's coming yeah, from? Yeah, we
0: should know where – isn't it Trulio? T-R-D? Oh, does he say? Yeah. yeah I think he does. I think you're right. And the extended version Marco is just like, tell me about your home. And <laughs> okay, yeah, He wait, says wait, it's okay. in the hills above Trulio. Where is he in
2: Germany? I'm doing this. So
1: I I use Mainz as my starting point. That's just a city on the Danube. Or not the Danube, sorry, the Rhine. Just as you know, he's probably a little further in than that, but is use that as a basic starting point of just the Rhine as the frontier for Rome. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, some people complain about that, like, you know, he mad how he magically teleports. It sort of seems like he rides from Germany to Spain in one night. But like, no, it doesn't like, really bother me.
2: No, that doesn't bother um, me either. Mm-hmm. And he like has two horses and then they both die and he's like, you know, starving and I
0: forget Argento and what's the name of his other horse?
1: Oh, I uh, Scatto or something like that.
0: We're we're getting into weird details now. <laughs> I know.
2: It is. It's Argento and Scatto.
0: Okay, so bringing it back a little bit to go with like the planning of this because these shows are planned extensively in terms of cost and storyline and things like that. And so I'm just trying to think of like how are you going to headline this because Women Fighters is actually a big deal, but you wouldn't match them up, uh, the way you ha- like it would be like
1: they wouldn't be fighting men, probably. Yeah,
0: they'd be women fighting women. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, like, part of that and that conversation that Proximo has with the um, I don't know what to call him, the
1: the announcer ringmaster- guy, yeah, the, the, anima, the ringmaster, yeah. The, so to the speak, the MC. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, is just like, oh, we've done criminals. We we need to like up the ante because again, this is like a hundred days of games yeah. and celebrations. So it's like, we got to get creative. And it's like, all it's right. It's like
1: the, the SNL joke or like, it's a hundred floors of fright. They're not all going to be winners. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, what is the he- like? Because that would just be it. You would headline this in some way, right? See the battle yeah. of Carthage. It's like, we've got women, we've got gladiators fighting gladiators, but unfairly, which most Romans would not be on board with mm-hmm. because... Uh, what is something comparable of a fight? Like if you were watching boxing and you have, it would be
1: like if I don't know if Ronda Rousey was going to fight Conor McGregor or something like that. And like I get the like spectacle of the whole thing, but like
0: the spectacle wasn't always like it, that's just is it. like they're portraying this that like the outward violence is meant to be the spectacle, and it's like mm-hmm. that's not always it. Like sometimes it really is just a fair fight of competition between two individuals, of which a lot of times. Neither party died
1: yeah. yeah it would be like there were certain events that were like it was almost like heavyweight boxing or something mm-hmm. like that where you go to see two fighters fight and like see who comes out on top because you don't know
0: yeah and you want them to be as evenly matched you know same yeah. weight class same yeah. style because that's the best fight right
2: like it's mm-hmm. not it's not a good game if you know if it's a knockout
1: yeah. And also we, we haven't necessarily talked about, but like gladiators tended to fall into like, I guess, maybe certain classes. Like there were certain mm-hmm. sort of stock types of gladiator that you tended to have traditional pairings between them. Yep. Right. Like the Rediarius, the net guy, he was usually fighting. I think the Secutor is like the, the guy with kind of the heavier armor and that sort of helmet with mm-hmm. the rim. You know, Thracian, there were sort of different sort of almost like flavor of gladiator. And it was like certain matchups. There's a really funny scene in Venture Brothers, if you ever watch it, where they talk about their favorite kind of gladiator, and one of the brothers teases the other brother about his favorite gladiator type being the Redi Arius and the, like the net guy, and he's like, Those lame net boys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so Battle of Carthage, favorite one in the movie, but like had the Roman audience seen that, would they would have been like, What? Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah. Versus, yeah. uh, so the one I have in my background, I forget what we officially would call it. It's like, that seems more likely, like a little spicy yeah. version of H- a gladiator Him
1: versus, fight. uh, what's his name? Is it Titus the Gaul or something like that?
0: Something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like,
0: yeah. That that seems a little more realistic, a little bit of the beast fights thrown in. Yeah. With the, yeah. Uh,
2: but it seems like, well, I don't know, maybe it was just the way that the movie sort of portrayed it was that the, the tigers were only going after Maximus and that like... I don't know. Maybe that's just how the shots were kind of framed.
1: Well, the only Maximus seemed to ever have any trouble with the tigers. Yeah. But I think also because Commodus says somebody, at the factory is like, Oh, it's been arranged as in like, I think the tiger trainer <laughs> guys are supposed to like unleash the tigers on Maximus.
2: Yeah. And so, but I'm like, it's that's also seems like an unfair, like weird thing to do that, you like couldn't get away with maybe, but
0: I guess. Well, this is still
1: Commodus trying yeah. to murder Maximus. That's true, yeah. or, or well, yeah. arrange for his death.
0: Versus like the actual planning, because like the, this was just like, all right, here's the idea: we've got some women chariot yeah. with yeah. they have the chariots, but we don't have prisoners, but they have weapons, and <laughs> mm-hmm. just see what happens. And just versus, see
1: what happens. <laughs> this sort of like this is a kind of a bit of a, a jump, but among the many sort of anachronisms or something like when Russell Crowe is the kind of looking at the line of helmets for himself and he like, you know, there's a bunch of those helmets are like clearly from like, you know, the Viking Age and stuff like that. But he picks out he's like one, he picks out the coolest helmet for himself. <laughs>
2: Obviously.
1: Yeah, and then like poor Jaimon Ansu has to get this like stupid little like, like dome with like a nipple on it. <laughs> um, like, if, like if I were Jaiman, he's like, can I get a cooler helmet? Like, a my cool helmet, helmet's lame. <laughs> yeah. Maxus gets this like all awesome like faceplate thing with like a yeah. spiky <laughs> yeah but but the thing I was thinking about is kind of my main gripe and it's not unique to this film it's a lot of films I think it's a lot of sword and sender films which is everybody in this movie and the world itself is treating Maximus like they know he's the main character even from the beginning where it's mm-hmm. like, You know, right in when he's in North Africa and everyone like Proximo kind of zooms in. He's like, Maximus is my guy. This guy's special. When like, really, it seems like that huge German guy or German Mm -hmm. Unsu should have been your guy. Like these guys would have been the one that would have popped for me. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Like
1: Maximus seems like like, what about him is so special that like the crowd goes crazy for him? Mm. Yeah. And and, and other things like that. And the helmet is just like one of those little examples where like he just so happens to get the coolest helmet on the shelf. Sure,
3: Sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's a that's a maybe a minor gripe from my end, Uh, but but I think that it is like these kind of sword and sandal films. Like they tend to sort of revolve around the main protagonist. Like they know he's the protagonist.
0: Maybe we're primed for that, though, because isn't that the general motif that a hero or a noble person is it's inherent like we know Mm -hmm. like they just look a certain way. And of course, they're noble. It's like when you watch
1: an anime, you can tell who's going to be a main character because their hairstyle is like eight times crazier (laughs) than the average. You know, everyone else just has like regular hair. And then one person has like giant pink hair. (laughs) Um.
2: (laughs) yeah yeah i do i want to like special shout out to Jamin hansu for being so cool he was an awesome awesome character and i kind of wish he was just the main character i would have watched that movie
1: hollywood wasn't ready for that
2: i know whatever but i loved actually their interactions and sort of just like how they like kind of talk to each other in a very just like honest and curious way he's like do you think that you'll like see your family after you're dead like I don't know what you believe do you think that and he's like do you think your family can hear you when you talk to them and I kind of loved that I thought it was really like small little sweet moments between these people in very precarious situations um, from very different places and they found that thing that they could talk about which was their the death of their families or something like that but I I loved
0: that. I liked it, except it seemed so one-sided that he was curious about Maximus the whole time, oh, and Maximus yeah. never reciprocated, never reciprocated, as, yeah. as if it's like, of course you want to know all about me,
1: Right. what yep. my wife
0: says yep. to me, <laughs> what I say to my wife, or stuff like that, but don't care about you. Don't care about your... you. And it's like, that would have been really cool, it's like, what about you? What, yeah, what's like, going on? Yeah, do you
2: think that your family, he's like, yeah, no, well, my family's still alive, blah, blah, blah.
1: Well, no. this leads me to a, a tiny other, like a, just a, a nitpicky grievance, which is the very the like last scene of the movie is Gemini burying Maximus's little like his lares or his mm-hmm. you know his little like family shrine figurines, buries them in the Colosseum, which I'm thinking like if he was actually friends with Maximus, that would be like the most inappropriate place to bury <laughs> his like family shrines, right? Because like that's one of those things where it's like it's for the audience because yeah. like we associate the Colosseum with Maximus and the movie. But, like, for Maximus himself, this would have been a place he would have associated with, like, pain and suffering and death. And in, it was, like, the source of, like, so much trauma in his life. Or, like, yeah. really, like, if he was going to bury these things anywhere, it would have been, like, back in Spain or, like, maybe somewhere in Germany or or something having to do with Marcus Aurelius. It would be, like, if you, like, buried Nelson Mandela's remains, like, in the prison he was imprisoned in or something like that. Like,
0: Yeah. That's yeah. Well... <laughs> And like I think it would have been kind of cool to play out more, like, because these, they formed fraternities, like Gladiators did, mm-hmm. specifically so that they, and they would have, like, uh, membership dues and everything, so that if one of them died, then a proper funeral could be held. And mm-hmm. I think yep. that could have been something kind of cool to show in the end, instead of, like...
1: Which is with, why it's important to unionize.
0: It, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> even, even Gladiators can bargain collectively. And, like,
0: we don't even see him get buried. We see... Yeah, and that I mean, that's what's hard. The Larrys are, are buried. It's like, that's his wife and his son are buried there. But to be fair, they were murdered back in Spain. So I, I guess I don't know where. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think, I mean, it would have been kind of cool if, if he like added a little Russell Crowe, like to the <laughs> figures of his wife and his child. to would be like, now you're
0: all together. <laughs> And then take him to would, his own kind of altar then, shrine. Yeah, and, to like take him with
2: him and I don't. Yeah.
0: You know that. I would mean, have it could
1: been. it could, have been, it could have been kind of cool. Like I kind of would have liked to see. Uh, I think his character's name is Juba. Yes. If he like makes it makes it back home I and mean, he's got these little lares, but then like I would love if it's like one of his daughters is, like, "What are those?" and he's like, "Dude, craziest thing happened to me." <laughs> uh, um, you would and not that believe.
0: Should be too. that should be <laughs> gladiator 2. That should be gladiator
1: 2. Yeah.
2: Yes. That's what I want. Uh, (laughs) The only gladiator 2 I want to watch.
1: I'm still, I'm a little bit intrigued by this, this this gladiator where he travels through time and like, (laughs) it's it's insane. Like, fights Christ. Like, I don't like, yeah, um, let's play that
0: game. What do we want actually from gladiator 2? And like, in terms of if, if, if we're back in the, uh, the Flavian amphitheater, I want the nautical battle. I want, oh, yes. That That would be a cool, yeah. Yes. Do that. I don't care who's Excellent. involved. I just want to see that.
1: Yeah. But yeah, like what? Like what do we want to to happen in Gladiator Two? And then my other question is, who do we want to direct Gladiator Two? Because I'm really thinking of like I'm going to go to like <laughs> I'm going to swing for the fences here of what what like what's the weirdest possible Gladiator Two? You know, we could because okay. I think we could probably agree Gladiator Two is probably the most unnecessary sequel. So unnecessary.
2: Um. So completely unnecessary. Maybe a prequel could be cool, but
0: not a.
1: Sweet. i'm actually cool. i'm sort of surprised they haven't done that already well yeah. this is a thing this is my last maybe serious point before we get to the game which is a thing that fascinates me is how the sword and sandal genre to me is, seems like it's such a static genre because it's like like we said when gladiator came about you know this genre was effectively dead and had been for like 40 years or something like that and gladiator really is actually not that much different sort of It's sort of atomic level from a movie like Fall of the Roman Empire or Quo Vadis or Ben-Hur or Spartacus. Like it's got the same DNA, the same kinds of characters, the same kinds of struggles, the same kinds of set pieces. It's just been modernized a little bit. It's like a little bit updated. But the DNA hasn't changed, which is so funny to me because, you know, there's other genres that are kind of, you know, of a type. But I was thinking like comparing it to like Westerns, which is another sort of like – Historically oriented genre mm-hmm. But westerns have to me Like they they never really you know they they had Peaks and valleys but they never really went Away and they've mm-hmm. also seemed to have evolved In a way that the sword and sandal Never really did and which is like I don't really know what to make of it because like All the movies that come after gladiator Are basically just trying to Recreate gladiator and maybe The only one that even remotely captures The sort of success of gladiator was 300 Which did it a little bit different You right. know it added that right. sort of fantastic graphic novel Mm -hmm. kind of element like it really sort of turned the dial up to a thousand in a lot of ways you know stylized it so much but a lot of the other ones like troy and king arthur which we're probably going to watch next week and alexander are like very much trying to like do what and even russell crowe himself made robin hood and then exodus Mm -hmm. trying to do gladiator again and they never popped And so maybe when Christy talked a little bit about, like, what was going on in 1999, 2000, that, like, worked for Gladiator, and then, like, why have we never been able to, like, like, why has it never popped again for us in the same way? This might be an unanswerable question, and I can just end the the podcast right here.
2: (laughs) I would say there's another movie that always pops up for me when I think about Gladiator, and it's probably because of Russell Crowe, but it's Master and Commander. Yes. Which is also... a great movie that I love and I feel, what year did that come out now that I think about it? Not long after this. And I feel like that didn't get the same, like, explosion of, like, we haven't had a series of maritime movies. Yeah, like the Patrick
1: O'Brien novels. Yeah, unless... It's my partner's favorite movie, or one of her favorite movies, which I first was like, interesting. And then I watched it. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This movie rules.
2: It's a great movie. <laughs> it has just like a really tight, well run plot. It's like awesome characters. I get a movie with no women.
1: <laughs> as I think yeah, but it's it. also, it's about, you know, <laughs> but
0: it's about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's dudes <laughs> on a boat. you on um, a ship.
0: You can't really go anywhere else with that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, uh, but that to me is like the perfect historical because it, it 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 does a great job where it is actually like in the story is completely made up.
2: Yeah, which is fine.
1: But it like nails exactly like that era, like age of sail, like what it was like to be on a boat, what it looked like, what it felt like, what it smelled like.
2: Yeah, it had all the nitty gritty. It was gross. It was sad. There was, yeah, it was an excellent, excellent movie. And I feel like it, it takes place over what, a few like months maybe. Yeah. It's a very small little slice of life at a certain time in a certain place and I feel like Gladiator almost is that same kind of slice which is like probably we don't really have an actual like time frame for how long this takes but it's not like Maximus's whole life it's not like he like and Commodus yeah like grow up together like we don't have the whole Alexander as a baby Alexander as a teenager and then like he dies it's this smaller slice of certain events in people's lives that I think works really well And I think that hasn't really happened yet.
1: It follows the good movie rule, which is get in late, get out early, right? Like, don't tell. And I think this is like we talked about this, like with Troy stuff, Mm -hmm. fails this test, I think, which is funny because the Iliad itself actually passes this test. Right?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) You know, the Iliad doesn't start until the 10th year of the war and it ends before the war ends. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, all, like, you know, a lot of these movies, like, feel and, like, Alexander and, like, Troy feel the need to tell it the story from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. But even, yeah, like, like, I was thinking, because, like, the only movie that I can think of that really is the exception, because sword and sandal movies are also of a piece, and the only really exception that I can think of is Agora,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, which
1: yeah. is set in the ancient world, but it's very much, like, not a sword and sandal movie, at least it doesn't right. hit the, you know, it's not about epic battles or corrupt emperors mm-hmm. or.
0: Because yeah. you your know. protagonist is a woman. Yeah, and it
1: features Christians, but not in the way that Sword and Sandals, you know, where they're this yep. like angelic group of people.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And like, why don't we have more movies like Agora? Because it, again, it's that kind of thing where Agora is kind of putting the weight of the world on its shoulders. And like, there's a lot of, you know, it's not a perfect movie by any, right, stretch, right, right. Of, by any stretch of imagination. But like, why do we not have more like just a, a, a romance or a comedy set yeah. in, yeah you know.
0: I think that's where you know, what I just said was kind of joking, but it's really true. It's like you had a woman as a protagonist for Agora and I love that movie. And I was just thinking of like Troy Fall of the City had this problem of like you are trying to instead of having your vanilla blank slate male protagonist, um, there are these stories that we that exist in these ancient worlds that we want to center, but movies just haven't done it mm-hmm. but there's other media that does I'm thinking of so many books and graphic novels that are doing this like Madeline Miller's work if you read Lore Olympus and mm-hmm. like so I go there for those stories and I think they're great I don't know of any point if any of them are going to be turned into movies I'd love to see a movie but instead we're getting Cleopatra which again has already been yeah. done and how much again. of it is for the sake of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony
1: yeah and it's going to hit – even if it centers Cleopatra, it's still going to hit a lot of the sword and sandal kind of, you know, tropes. And like another book I was thinking about is Lavinia by Ursula yep. Le Guin, which mm-hmm. to me is kind of the the predecessor for, for sure.
3: like Madeline yeah. M-
1: Miller's yep. kind of oeuvre, which I really – I mean, yeah, I, re, I really like Lavinia. But that's exactly it. You know, it's sort of on the periphery. So I don't, I don't know. It's just – it's a thing that I, that I think about a lot of, you know, why stories about this time period are so – one-dimensional in the kind of genre that they play in
2: yeah do we think they're too serious to be funny because like i would love like a more modern version of like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum but in a way yeah. that's not offensive to everybody so there,
1: there was a show on bbc for a while called plebs which was kind of just like a oh i goofy, remember that goofy workplace comedy i don't know i always thought you could you could totally adapt the satiricon into like a sort of almost like a I think it's a little late for this now also because comedies might not be totally viable in the current sure. box office landscape, but like a, you could do the satiricon as like a Judd Apatow kind of like, you know, buddy <laughs> comedy with like Seth Rogen and James Franco being the like main guys and the satir just kind of like bumbling around Rome. I don't know.
0: Um, when you were asking the question of who, it, for, for the second one, who would you want to? I don't know directors' names. I'm terrible with that. But I, the fact that Chris Hemsworth was involved, I just went to Thor Ragnarok,
1: oh, and I realized uh, Taika like Waititi. that <laughs> is I
0: either. would watch
1: a Taika Waititi Rome period piece where he's right? like a hundred percent. Everyone just has a New Zealand accent, and they're all like, "You going to the Coliseum? And you're like, hey, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm gonna watch a. I'm gonna watch a man get stepped on by an elephant."
0: <laughs> and I just realized like. Wait, maybe it's, maybe Gladiator Two already happened. It was Thor Ragnarok, right? <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think, like, I don't know, like, I want to see like a like a Gladiator Two directed by like Nora Ephraim or something like that. Like, it's you got mail, but they're trying to meet up in the Colosseum or something like that. And they're like, they're trying to have their meet cute, and in the background, like, somebody's getting like eviscerated by a lion. Um, <laughs>
2: We could be some sort of like Ovid writing The Amores, like trying to tell people how to pick up women, but yes. it's like all the women around him are just like having affairs with each other. And mm-hmm. it's this beautiful bisexual disaster movie. I would love that.
0: That'd be great.
1: Yeah, like a book smart kind of thing yeah. where it's like two like two teens and they're like trying to get laid or get invited to the latest party or whatever has, it is. I know, it's super who I'm bad.
0: Gonna... I want Alcibiades. Yeah. I want an Alcibiades <laughs> biopic well that would uh, just be an actual bisexual that would disaster just, movie it would just
1: be like watching a frat party spill out into the street that's what that uh movie would be and, or watching a bunch of like drunk kids graffiti a whole city but
0: that's where it starts that's not where it ends that's the best part <laughs> and you have pericles in there too
1: this is the movie about uh, uh like Alcibiades where he 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 drunkenly like graffitis in a city and also like convinces the whole city to invade Syracuse.
2: <laughs> Just creates like a mass geopolitical disaster while drunk. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's what I want. That's what I want. Well, I think that's, that's something that would be very interesting is, you know, again, we ta- kind of talked about like, there isn't a lot of, representation of the main characters in this movie because it's very centered around the power, right? But like,
3: Mm
0: -hmm. look at that huge audience and just be like, dude, guess what I saw happen today? It was nuts. Mm -hmm. Like, can't we (laughs) actually get to the, you know, lower level classes, people side of things of like, and this is so relatable for us, right? Like, here's all these names of all these people we know. They're doing batshit crazy things. Makes the news for the day. And like now I go home and have my uh, nasty fish garum thing, whatever. (laughs) Well, that's what I think
2: I loved so much about HBO's series, Rome, was that you had just like normal ass people just like trying to live their lives and survive when all of these um, like wider terrible things were happening in the city. And it's sort of how do normal people have to interact with the fact that, oh shit, we have to like close down the shop because the army's coming in or there's going to be an invasion. And yeah, like I lost my job. Like, what do I do now? I'm a veteran. And like, how do I get paid? How do I support my family? Like these like very normal, boring problems.
1: You're, you're pitching like a marriage story. I but know. it's set in like, <laughs> like 2 AD.
2: Um,
1: a family it, getting a divorce.
2: yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was going
1: to say like, like a scene where um like a bunch of guys are like coming home from like a night at the bar and then like they have to stop like, oh, shit, it's Nero. And it's like Nero and his thugs are just roaming the streets looking for people to beat him. Like, hold up. <laughs> like, like watch out. It's like, and it's like and some guys like, yeah, I get, Nero kicked my ass last week or whatever. Like him and his goons just like beat the hell out of me. Yeah,
0: I would love that. Yeah, I think we're we're tired of the hero archetype, both in mythology and in media. It's very played out, and I I want someone who doesn't have to, like, save all of Rome.
1: I mean, yeah. I think that's yeah. exactly It's, it like, so much of the sword and sandal genre is, like, tied up intricately with, like, male, parentheses, white protagonists saving mm-hmm. Rome from its own corrupt self or from the outside invasion or, you know, whatever it is. And, like, that story trope, like, we were maybe ready for it in 2000. But I think it's, I think, Chrissy, you're right. We need, a, we need a new spin. But, like, the ancient world is this, like, weird and wild and, like, wonderfully diverse place. Like, there's totally, like, a, a space for whatever it is. You know what, I actually, I want to see. I want to see, like a, like, a horror story. I want to see, like, a straight-up witch
0: or, mm-hmm. you know, yes.
1: like, midsummer type like, just somebody getting in with, like, a weird-ass cult and there's, like, a monster.
0: Yes. I've been reading about Roman witches um Erycto and mm-hmm. um and it's from the perspective of the Priapus statue. Yep. 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 Oh, yeah.
2: Or is it <laughs> what is it Erycto? who's the I think it's a Horace poem where she's like burying the a, guy Canidia. alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah Canidia God. is
1: the one from Horace where she like it's like one of the poems is like a boy about to be like turned into a stew basically.
2: Oh, that is some real real actual horror shit. That would be mm-hmm.
0: Ooh, or even maybe golden ass Golden ass could be fun that could could be be really
1: fun there's a lot you probably have to sanitize about it but
0: (laughs) i don't know hbo has really let some things roman literature i have not read nearly enough but it definitely gives you some variety that maybe existed in the ancient greek world but like the greek stuff seems very sanitized compared to the roman (laughs) literature
1: (laughs) they were dang ass freaks
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. I just, this memory like exploded into my brain. I, when I took, it was a Latin prose or composition course in my master's and we had to sort of like write a story um, in the style of somebody and somebody in my class wrote um, (laughs) like a scene from (laughs) the princess bride in the style of Apuleius basically. So it was like the, (laughs) it was Max, the, the, they call him like a witch doctor or something where he's going to bring Wesley back from the dead <laughs> and he's, like, he's almost Miracle dead Max, yeah. he's mostly <laughs> dead but yeah of like that sort of like kooky nonsense would be so much fun and it's, there's plenty plenty of material mm-hmm. for kooky nonsense
1: we should come back to the gladiator 2 question
2: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: we can definitely do that
1: okay. all right let's take a second I want to think about
0: what what do we want for gladiator 2 are we going based on the premise that like it's going to be about Lucius Verus?
1: I think we'd take it any way you any want. any
0: way we want. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. I think I have mine. Well, first, I I don't want a gladiator two. That would be my ideal. Is no gladiator two.
1: You're in the Lana Wachowski moment where it's like the studio's gonna make it with or without you. So
2: <laughs> I understand. Yes. Okay. But if we have to, if I have to Lana Wachowski this, then I want. The only character, the only, like, returning person to be Lucilla. Mm. I want an entirely new cast from there. Except maybe a cameo by Jim and Ansu who comes back, like, with his family and is awesome and totally happy and fulfilled in his life. <laughs> and I want just, like, starting from scratch. I want a completely different plot. I want it to have almost nothing to do with with the actions of this movie except maybe there will be political overtones because maybe Lucilla is still trying to be more Republic-like and maybe, I don't know, 25 years later? Who is it? 20-some, 30-some years later? Who's emperor?
0: Crap, do I have to Google this? <laughs>
1: it's not Caracalla, are we at? Yeah, it, it
0: might be. Caracalla is 211 to 237. Okay.
1: Oh okay, so we're in the Caracalla zone.
2: Which could be fun because Caracalla is someone else who is really characterized as kind of a wild He's um, a weird dude. Weird guy. And there's maybe we could do something with like the the citizenship what is what's it called?
1: Yeah, his he grants citizenship yeah, to everybody. He, he basically. grants citizenship
2: to the entire empire, basically, Roman citizenship. And it disastrous in so many ways. Um, and it's sort of, you know, argued by historians to be like an economic ploy, but it's it's you know, functions really weirdly on a more social scale. Maybe that's what I would want if we if we have to we have to do this. Make it completely different.
0: <laughs> what is your gladiator component? Because there's got to be. Gladiators. I don't care, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> how do you call it Gladiator Two without it having a gladiator? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that is fair. That's what I was trying to figure out. I was like, okay, how do I still have a gladiator involved? Yeah. And... Yeah.
2: Well, I mean. Again, Caracalla was kind of a a wild guy. He could he could have some sort of gladiator component to him like Commodus. Um, didn't he also build he built one of the big big bathhouses?
1: Yes, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: mm-hmm. so, I don't know, maybe there could be some just uh competition, you know, with new architecture coming through, uh, new entertainment in town.
1: Is it was it Caracalla's baths for like recently there was like McDonald's was trying to build a mm-hmm. a, a site in one of the baths? Was it Baz- it was was it Maybe. the Baza Caracalla? That
2: wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It was
1: either him or Diocletian. it was those or Diocletian's baths. I can't remember which one. I like distinctly remember sort of thinking we're like, like I get like, no, you shouldn't build a McDonald's in this bathhouse, but like that guy secretly might have been into this idea. <laughs> um, like, were he alive, he might have endorsed it. Oh yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's like what else are you gonna do? <laughs> All right, that's me. It's my very pessimistic view.
1: <laughs> so it's yours is more like a it. political thriller, right?
2: Yes. Like, I would say mine okay. is definitely a political thriller.
0: Okay. I think I like the, I don't know. It's like if, if we can actually have a woman be a gladiator and you actually do start somewhere in the periphery and like it actually be a story of like proving oneself to get to fight in uh, Rome as like the headliner. Just a completely different thing. It's not politics involved. Like that's kind of going on in the background, and maybe that presents obstacles, to, like making this lifelong dream happen. Maybe that's what I want. Is just like if we're actually going the gladiator angle, like what what was that life actually like from like beginning to end, especially if you were an unorthodox individual to be involved in that. Which we got a little bit here, but like not that. nearly enough.
1: I don't I don't want to I don't want to like set the bar too high, but I think I got it. Okay. All right. Here's my pitch. We we start off, Jai-man, Jaimanunsu like comes home. He's got his daughters, his family. We fast forward sort of twenty years. His daughters are now adults. The farm is like gonna get repossessed or something like that. There's sort of a like a taxation. We gotta raise money for the farm. The daughters are like. We got to raise money for the farm. It's going to go under or whatever it is. They say like, we're going to go for this wild, crazy plan. Our dad, they find like their dad's old memorabilia about the time he used to be a superstar. They go in like, we're going to become gladiators. You know, there's a sort of like a tr- an arc where it's like they have a rough time to get their asses kicked a bunch they eventually fight their way up they start maybe i think he's i think he's supposed to be nubian so they start in egypt somewhere and then they work their way up mm-hmm. and then you know eventually caracalla we can get maybe get a cameo from lucius verus who maybe like endorses them or something like that mm-hmm. and then they become like there's essentially their dream it's like it's almost like a it's like Cinderella Man or, or, uh, you know, Million Dollar Baby. It's a sports movie uh, about them sort of, like, defying all the odds, like, like, fighting their, like, fighting their ways up the ring, like, you know, two sort of, two underdogs from the provinces, and we call it gladiators. And then the- And, to ta- and it and to ends ta- in the
0: naval ta- battle. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. And one of the scenes can be like a huge naval battle or something like yes. that. And then also like to take a page out of the K- James Cameron when he was pitching Alien, he just – the way he pitched Aliens was he just wrote Alien, put an S on it, and put a dollar sign through it. And so that's what I do, just gladiators with a dollar Double sign. Oh, my God. Yes. That's my pitch. It is a sport. It is just yep. out and out a sports movie, sports like a Rocky-esque movie. about Jaiman Onsu's daughters. They're a tag team. That's Love very it. key. Mm-hmm. I think he says, I think he has at least more than one daughter. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a, like a Williams sister story. I was just like going to say, it, it, yes. Except it's Gladiator and, and Jaiman Onsu's like their coach or whatever. <laughs> or no, he's against it because he's like, I hate being a Gladiator. Like, gladiating sucked. And so, but yeah, that's, that's my pitch. I oh. love it. Mm-hmm.
0: That's spectacular. Yep. That's what I want. If we have to do yeah. this, that would especially because you can't have Commodus. Commodus is dead. So I'm like, no, exactly. no.
1: Caracalla can show up and he can be this like, you know, this dude like he's just there at the games or mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's Caracalla.
2: <laughs> he's weird.
1: There could even be a plot point where it's like, hey, we just got citizenship, but you know, it comes with the citizenship taxes. taxes.
2: <laughs> and maybe that's what starts the whole problem. It's like we got to get money to pay our taxes exactly. now.
1: Yeah, and then and then they say something like, Like, we just became Roman citizens, you're gonna throw it all away and they're like, We gotta if we're gonna save the farm mm-hmm. or I I don't know, if not the farm, then something else. But right, save right, the right. farm. Yeah. It works. And
0: yeah. So good. And
1: then and we can get cameos from Connie Nielsen. You know, we can get sort of various cameos. It can be, you know, a little plaque to Maximus or whatever, but like Out and Out, it is a it is a Rocky movie, basically.
2: I was gonna say yeah. a league of their own. Two yeah. sisters yes. going out yep. into Le- the into the world. Dealing with fame, maybe as gladiators mm. had to.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I love people it. trying to steal their sweat. Yeah. To make aphrodisiacs.
0: <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> I'm curious if it's men or women. Oh. Why? I don't know. I, I mean, both. Yeah. I like it. I had one other thought that I realized I hadn't voiced um, the MC guy. His eyebrows. With Excellent the eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is happening? They will be my, make a my cameo, nomination for, for best,
1: best supporting actor. Um, <laughs> okay, I think we're about it's about that time. We've yep. only recorded for two hours and 20 minutes,
0: only which we knew we were going to. So. Yeah, yeah that's fine.
1: <laughs> One of my students asked me what I was doing this weekend, and now I'm realizing like this. Um, okay. That was our uh, long and meandering, you know, Ridley Scott paste uh, review <laughs> of Gladiator. Thank you again for listening. We're going to be back next week. It seems like we're kind of we're, we're sticking more or less to a kind of arc or a theme this this batch, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, and also the guests, our guest lineup changes that thing. But as usual you can find us at movies follow us at, at dig movies on twitter uh if you enjoy and you and you like what you're hearing please rate us uh like and review all that stuff particularly on uh apple podcasts it really helps when you get ratings for trying to sort of actually get listeners uh but yeah thank you again and we'll be back next week bye bye